Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. Today, I'm speaking with Andrea Miller, founding board member of the Center for Common Ground. The Center for Common Ground is a nonpartisan organization dedicated to turning out the vote of people of color in voter suppression states in the South. We talk about the most devious and extreme voter suppression tactics today, the tools and techniques to fight them, and the importance of teaching people how their government works. Andrea's tireless work may ultimately make all the difference between red and blue in the coming elections, and we'll talk about how you can play a part in that too. And now here's my conversation with Andrea Miller. Andrea Miller, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Well, thank you so very much. I am very excited about being here tonight. So Andrea, what is the Center for Common Ground? The Center for Common Ground is a nonpartisan nonprofit. We are actually a C3, and our specialty is turning out the BIPOC vote, Black, Indigenous, AAPI, and Hispanic. And our real specialty is Southern states and rural areas. So we generally say our mission is to empower underrepresented voters to fully participate in democracy. And we actually expanded our mission statement so it's not just elections, but it's also teaching people how to advocate for themselves. So we actually have a fairly robust collection of training courses now. That's exciting. When and why did you start the organization? Well, we started the organization, I got back into elections in 2016 when the NAACP hired me to do civic engagement in Virginia. They hired 21 civic engagement coordinators. Virginia was the only state that won. So I grew up on election room counting floors. I'm from Chicago. I had two uncles who were aldermen. So I grew up watching my uncles in the 60s, mind you, turn out the black vote. So it was something that I guess I just kind of learned how to do sitting there under the tables, watching my dad go and give people rides to the polls and all the things that went into making sure that older voters, voters who didn't drive, voters who had disabilities actually got to the polls and voted. 
So we were successful in Virginia in 2016. Virginia has their statewide elections on odd years. So there was a Virginia statewide election in 2017 where we came within one vote of tying for control of the Virginia House and we were down by 15 seats. So we picked up 14 seats in that one election. And then it was the special election in Alabama. So I contacted the Alabama NAACP and said, can we work with you on this special election? And they said yes. That was the Senate race. That was Doug Jones. Yeah. And now what was really interesting about that election was Doug Jones had basically sort of stayed all the other organizations and said, if you don't have an Alabama accent, please stay out of Alabama. Well, when I talked to friends who are in Alabama, they were driving a lot of calls into Huntsville, Birmingham. I have a lot of friends in Montgomery. Montgomery was feeling no love at all. So I thought if nobody's calling the capital of the state, there is really going to be a need to make sure voters know about the special election, help them get a ride if they need a ride, and make sure they know where they're supposed to vote. So that's what we did. We called the Alabama Black Belt. The Black Belt starts at Montgomery, and then it goes west. So we were calling Montgomery. We were calling Selma, Tuscaloosa, Tuskegee, all those really, really fun places where only Alabama could come up with a name like that. And we also called voters. We went down south and called voters in Mobile. Probably the saddest call I heard was a woman probably in her 40s in Mobile, Alabama. We called her and we asked her if she knew about the election and she said yes. We asked her if she was going to vote. Yes. Did she know where to vote? Did she have a way to get there? And she said, you know, she said, while we've been talking, I've been thinking about this. I've had this phone number for 15 years, and this is the first political call I have ever gotten. Very interesting. Well, people in certain states get pretty ignored. Alabama's one of them. Everybody ignores the South, which is beyond ridiculous. So when you look at states like Alabama, Alabama is 41% by pot. Florida is 55, nearly 56%. Louisiana is nearly 55%. And Texas, while not a southern state, it's a western state. Texas is 55%. So when you look at the really bad voter suppression laws, people know the numbers are not with them. 
and those percentages that I gave you, that's voting age population. That is not general population. So our new campaign in our southern states is vote your power. And what are you doing? Is it a specific outreach? Yes, it's an outreach, not based on what I call the prom king, prom queen formula. Oh, who are you going to vote for? Are you going to vote for XYZ candidate? We talk to voters about what their issues are. And we don't make up the issues. We talk to people who live in that state. For instance, in Georgia, the Atlanta NAACP actually had Howard University do a study of why voters who could have voted in the 2020 election did not vote. And we heard all kinds of answers from, I didn't know where the voting was, I couldn't get there. And then there were some people who were like, well, I didn't like any of the candidates. And we also asked voters, what issues are really, really, really important to you? And weirdly enough, absolutely nobody said voting rights. People said things like health care, good paying jobs, education for my kids, real bread and butter issues, the same things that are important to voters everywhere, regardless of their race. It's those kitchen table issues. That's what voters cared about. So I want to talk about what you guys are doing in your various campaigns. But first, let's talk about the threats because there are a lot of things that are blocking people from voting. What, well, first of all, what states, tell me all the states you guys work in. We work in Southern states and Western. So Alabama, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Texas, Virginia, and a brand new state for us this year, Louisiana. Okay, so what are the impediments to voting that exist generally in these states and what historically have been the most pernicious threats? Well, I'm going to answer the question in a slightly different way. I'm going to talk about Virginia. In 2019, when we did the Virginia state races, we basically won the Virginia House and we won the Virginia Senate. And so in the 2021 legislature, we saw Virginia introduce and pass the most expansive voter expansion bills in the country. The country does not have a Voting Rights Act. Virginia has a Voting Rights Act. Virginia was a state that didn't have no excuse absentee voting. We now have 45 days of vote by mail or in-person early voting. We also passed a law that said every county must have drop boxes. And learning from what they did in Texas, we said and there must be one drop box for every 20,000 registered voters. And we also repealed photo ID. Now, 
December of 2021, Virginia introduced 34 voter suppression bills, the greatest number of voter suppression bills in the country, seeking to overturn every good law that we had passed in the first quarter. Because Virginia at that point had flipped again. Yes. In the 2021 election with a Republican governor and a Republican whatever house. But the Senate is still Democratic, right? Still Democratic. So we know that all those voter suppression bills are going absolutely nowhere. So it's like, yeah, you can introduce them all day long, but you're not getting them through the Senate. Unfortunately, we may lose a bill that I've worked on since 2007. Virginia is one of four states that has lifetime felony disenfranchisement. So Iowa, Kentucky, Florida, and Virginia, if you were convicted of a felony, and again, it could be an actual felony, it could be one of those three strikes, you're out, you've got three misdemeanors, and that's automatically a felony, you lost your vote for a lifetime unless individually restored by the governor. So in Florida, they passed Amendment 4, where the citizens of Florida said enough already. If the criminal justice system has said, you did your time, now you're ready to go back into society. If they get a job, they're going to have to pay taxes. Well, you might as well get your voting rights back. But again, what the Florida legislature did was say, not so fast. We're not going to let you get your voting rights back until you pay all of your fines and your fees. And then they conveniently couldn't figure out what anybody's fines and fees were. Right. So effectively, votes still blocked. They nullified it. Right. And the Florida law would have impacted 1.2 million people. Now, in Virginia, we passed a constitutional amendment because felony disenfranchisement was introduced in the Virginia Constitution in 1902. So again, 1902-2021, we passed a constitutional amendment that says voting is a fundamental right. We're not going to let you vote while you're incarcerated. But upon release from prison, you automatically get your full rights of citizenship back. Well, in order to amend our Constitution, we have to pass it twice through the Virginia legislature, and then it goes to the citizens of Virginia as a referendum. The House literally killed all the bills, including a bill by a Republican legislator. And I heard that the Senate may have failed to pass the bills out of the Senate today. And if they had passed in the Senate, they would then go to the House on crossover. Well, it just shows you how sad it is When you can't get something passed when the Democrats are all in power, then all, you know, you lose your shot and everything gets stripped away again. I mean, which we just saw happen at the federal level when we couldn't pass 
that Voting Rights right. Act. It really lets people see how delicate democracy really is. God, hasn't that been the lesson of the last four years, five right, years? Right, right. And in Georgia, we won the election on January 5th, 2021 in Georgia, where it was beyond historic. We sent a black man and a Jewish man to the United States Senate from the great state of Georgia. The Georgia legislature went into session on January 13th and all hell broke loose on January 20th. We saw 40 bills come out of the Georgia legislature, and their number one goal was to end no excuse vote by mail. And we helped the local groups in Georgia put so much pressure on their legislators, they couldn't do it. So as bad as SB 202 was, it didn't accomplish their main objective and no excuse for vote by mail. So it's still there. Yeah, voter suppression was bad before the 2020 election. And there's, you know, just so much of what you're describing, you know, voter purges and, you know, not giving formerly incarcerated people the right to vote, taking away drop boxes, closing polling places, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now I've got to give Texas credit for coming up with something totally new. In Texas, in order to do no excuse vote, but well, actually, Texas doesn't have no excuse vote by mail. You can only vote with an excuse. So you have to be 65 years old, pregnant within six weeks of delivering your child, disabled, or you are working out of the county during election day and the entire period of early voting. Texas in virtually every county, was rejecting 40 to 50% of absentee vote-by-mail requests. Now, again, remember, these are the most vulnerable Texans trying to vote by mail. They're over the age of 65, they're pregnant, about to give birth, or they're disabled. So, They were rejecting the absentee ballot request. Oh, you used the wrong form. We're rejecting it. And this was during COVID too, probably. Well, exactly. This is right now. They were like, oh, darn, you know what? Uh, We changed the form. And they also changed the structure of their driver's license number. So if you have been driving for a long time, your driver's license number has less digits in it than the new driver's license. So if you put in an old driver's license, they immediately rejected it. It's like, oh, we don't know who you are. And then we're telling people, all right, in the last floor of your social, oh, we don't have your social security numbers on file, so we don't know who you are. It's like, really, people? And then the one that I loved the most was older people requesting that if they had been thrown off the rolls and they found out in time and they wanted to get back, requesting to have a voter registration form sent to them, oh, we're out of paper. Oh, my God. It's like, 
Okay, we, we need to send truckloads of paper to Texas. Now that one really, really embarrassed them. So the gosh darn, we're out of paper. That one only lasted for about a week. And they're like, all right, we have paper again. So we can print voter registration forms. Incredible. Really? So, okay, let's go to what you guys do to fight all this. Tell me about the tools in your arsenal to fight these suppression tactics. Well, number one, since we work with rural voters of color, in many rural areas of the South, there is not only no broadband, there is no cell service. So that means we're not going to be texting those voters. Texting is out. Also, in many of the rural areas, since nobody's called them in years, we don't really have up-to-date phone numbers. So what we do is we send postcards. So in 2020, we sent 9.4 million postcards to voters in our target states. And on our postcards, we tell people when the election is, we put a label on our postcards that will have the website for their county where they can get information. But it also has a phone number in the event there's no internet, no computer, everybody's got a phone or knows somebody that has one where they can call and they can ask a question. We do text and whenever we can text, we really love texting because we can send so much information out so quickly. In 2020, we invented our own texting platform, which was called Text Percent. So you you have this texting program, you have postcards, phone banking. Do you knock on doors? We do now. And then I read you also had billboards? Yes. Yes. I spent $190,000 on billboards. One of the things about billboards is billboards stand there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so when you're out driving on a rural road in Texas and here's this 30-foot billboard, you kind of can't help but notice it. So we had billboards in all of our target states. I only buy digital billboards so that when I'm going from early voting, I can then switch to, and now this is, the polls are open on election day, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., whatever it is, and then I can give people a really obvious web link that they can go to, and then we give them a phone number that they can call. And again, remember, people are driving, so you can't put a lot of words on a billboard. Right, right. So do you have any metrics from 2020 that showed how successful these are? How do you figure out if they actually moved the needle, all of these tactics? It was much harder to do in 2020 than it was in 2017. When we were in Alabama in 2017, we were the only organization in Alabama because Doug Jones had basically scared everybody away. 
I called the governor, Governor Don Eagleman, and said, I've got volunteers, and we're really, really anxious to work in Alabama. And he said, great, Alabama needs help. So since Don was former governor and Doug hadn't been elected to anything, I felt it was okay to ignore Doug. So (laughs) what we found is, and again, everything that we do is digital. So every call we make, it records, we made this call, and the voters said yes, they were going to vote or no. So at the end of the election, when they upload who voted, we were able to go back and say, these were all the calls we made. We made this many phone calls. Now, out of all the people that we called, this many people voted. Now, in Alabama, 85% of the people that we called voted. And one of the questions we asked the voters was, has anybody talked to you about this election? We didn't even say called, meaning if they sent you a postcard, if they knocked on your door, if they called, if they texted, if they, you know, sent up a weather balloon, has anybody said anything to you about this election? And after 100% of the voters for three days had told us, no, they had not heard from anybody else but us. We know that those numbers represent purely the work that we did because nobody else was there. We had a similar situation in Onslow, North Carolina, in 2019, there were 309 people, Onslow is a little rural county, where either the people did not have a phone number given on their record, or we had already tried the phone number given and it was bad. So we had 309. So we sent 309 postcards to voters in Onslow County. The next month, 79 people re-registered to vote. And this is in a county where the average number of voter registrations and re-registrations was three. Wow. Yeah. So out of 309 postcards, 79 people got re-registered. That's great. Now... Because we postcard everybody in a county, and in many instances now, we are not the only organization working that county. It is significantly harder to be able to tell when people did turn out to vote, was it purely our efforts? We know that we were a huge help in Georgia because while 30 progressive organizations were in Atlanta, we were out in Houston County and Bibb County and Peach County, and we were out in Chatham, which is Savannah. We were out in the Georgia Black Belt. And so what our goal there was, Atlanta was going to be blue. We knew that. But what we needed to do was to keep the rural counties from going 80 to 20. So if the other groups could get Atlanta as blue as they could get it, and then we could pink rural. So instead of 80, 20, 60, 40, 
occasionally 55, 45, that was enough add-on votes to get a win. Interesting. So in a state like Georgia, where it's purple, but like it's, you know, heavily blue and heavily red, but, you know, mixing together, every vote counts. Like you were talking about in Virginia, that race where, you know, one vote was all that made the difference. And wasn't that decided by a flip of a coin in the end? Or or it was like, oh, pulling the name out of a hat. They pulled a sheet of paper out of a right. right. Yeah. Anyhow, so in those states, I understand really putting a lot of resources into them because I mean, look, we got two Senate seats, but we talked a lot about Alabama and it seems like you put a lot of energy into places like that where there's like, I think I read 35% of Alabama voters identify as Democrats. Again, as a nonpartisan organization. So you're just getting people out to vote. Okay. I can't look at the D's or R's. I look at, are you BIPOC? Because here's the deal. I know that Black, Native Americans, Hispanic voters, and AAPI voters, I've got a 90% shot that they're going to vote the way I want them to. So it's a law of big numbers. So if I let the Democratic Party go turn out all the Democrats, and I just concentrate on the extra voters... We lost more than 9,800 elections in the past probably 15 years since Bill Clinton introduced us to the notion of we really want to go after the white suburban voter. We don't really need to pay any attention to black voters, whether they're urban or rural, because they're always going to be with us. Well, boy, that has proven not to be the case. People just stopped voting. So what we did was, when I look at a state, number one, what is the population of their BIPOC voters? Is it above 20%? It's got to be at least 20% for me to even consider going in the state. Then I look at, all right, now, the BIPOC voters, do they vote? And invariably, we will find there are many areas where we have a concentration of BIPOC voters where 55% of people who could vote didn't. So again, if I'm looking at Georgia has 2.4 million Black voters, well, if 45% of them aren't voting, and I can get 20% of them who don't normally vote to show up, I'm going to win that election. I've got a really good shot. It's a law of big numbers. Sure. Makes sense. So 2020, the way it played out, obviously it was a big year for top of the ballot and in Georgia for the Senate races, but it wasn't so great for the Democrats lower down the ballot. Are there any lessons you're taking from there? You told me about this study that looked at why people didn't vote. Is that informing anything for you going forward? Yes. Yes. One of the things that we're doing, I said we're starting to do a lot of training. And we heard this in 2017 with the Doug Jones race. We don't teach civics anymore. People don't understand what level of government is responsible for what. 
We had voters in 2017, Lowndes County, where they've got a major problem. They're like a third world country where the black community, everybody's got sewage in their backyard. Voters told us, all right, I'm going to vote for your boy this time. I have voted for a Republican. I'm going to give your boy a shot. If there is still sewage in my backyard, I'm going to vote for whoever gets sewage out of my backyard. Again, your U.S. senator has got nothing to do with the sewage in your backyard. That's your city council or county council because there was no sewage downtown. There was just sewage in the backyards in the rural black community. So we are offering state-specific civics courses to, well, number one, explain to people how the federal government is supposed to work and help people understand terms that they heard all the time, filibuster. Well, if you don't live in this world, you don't know what a filibuster is. It's like, did something break? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, democracy broke. That's what broke. And so we explained those terms And then we realized we need to explain how the Board of Elections in your state works. For instance, Georgia and Arizona were busy introducing legislation that said, if we don't like the results of the election, we can take over the boards of elections and then we can just, you know, make up some new numbers and say, we're going to elect somebody else. And, you know, they were threatening members of the electoral boards. So we realized we need to explain to people how folks get on those electoral boards. So for instance, in Virginia, our electoral boards are all governor's will. So whatever party the governor is, your state board of elections is going to be dominated by that party, as will all 133 counties in the state. And your local boards of elections determine things like, well, now, are they really going to do the drop boxes? Where are they going to put them? What are they going to do with voter registration forms that are really close but a little off? They have the ability to make the decisions as to this is how we're going to handle that. Right. Well, that sounds brilliant because I think education is so much a part of this, like just having people understand how things work and who's responsible for what. Let's talk about how we can help you. Your work is really extensive. How do you get your funding? We are very, very lucky in that I mentioned most of our volunteers are in California and in New York. So we have volunteer donors. And because we do elections as a C3, we are faith organization friendly. I'm part of a number of faith tables. So because of our faith partners, we actually had in 2020, 44,000 volunteers. In many instances, we would have entire congregations writing postcards. One of our volunteers, her 99-year-old mother puts stamps on the postcards. That's what she does. Some of our folks had 
children in middle school writing postcards. I love it. That's great. So so if people want to sign up to volunteer, are you running campaigns now or yes. should they wait? Okay. Yes, yes. Our current campaign now is to Texas. Texas has a primary on March 1st. So you can go to our website, center for commonground.org and it's for f-o-r center for commonground.org and there's a take action menu at the top and then it'll say do you want to send postcards do you want to make phone calls do you want to text and then you can check whichever one you do now the primaries in North Carolina, may or may not be on May 17th, where jury's still out on that one. But we know that Alabama and Georgia will have primaries on May 24th. They are both on May 24th. South Carolina has a primary on June 14th. Virginia has a primary on June 21st. That will purely be congressional. And then on August 2nd, Florida has a primary. And on August 23rd, Arizona has a primary. Okay, so we've got nonstop work ahead of us. That's right. And then once we get done with the August primaries, well, now it's time to ramp up for early voting in all the states that have early voting. So we will be working on campaigns all year. So. Okay. We think it's our goal to send maybe 20 million postcards this year. Oh, and now the really fun primary. Louisiana has their primary on November 8th. And their general is on December 10th. They like to do it their own way. (laughs) Exactly. You know, you've always got to have that exception that makes the rule. That's Louisiana. So we will be working year-round. Okay, great. So, Andrea, before we finish up, I just wanted to give you a chance. If you have quick tips, any quick things you want to tell listeners to take away from this podcast, what are the most important things? Yes, most important things. Check your voter registration at least four times a year and make sure that it is active. All 50 states of the union do purge, meaning they go through and they clean up the voting rolls. They're removing dead voters, voters that have moved out of the state. Every once in a while, they remove the wrong voter and you don't want that to be you. So check your voter registration every quarter. Be sure that when you vote, you develop a voting plan. If your state offers early voting, plan to vote early. So that way, if you get sick, if something happens, then election day can be your backup plan. So always have a voting plan. Andrea Miller, thank you so much for joining me today. You do such inspiring and tireless work to empower voters of color in the South. And I Really wish you all the best of luck this election. And I hope that you get a lot of people from this podcast to come help you out with that. Oh, thank you so much, Nancy. This was 
a lot of fun. And again, as you can tell, I live with this information 18 hours a day. There's nothing I need to look up. It's all right there in my head because I've been working with it every day. Yeah. Well, thank you. We all appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I always tell people, I'm just a geek sitting there with my computer tracking strange things about election law in various states. And if it weren't for the wonderful volunteers who bring the work to light, all of our volunteers are what make this work so wonderful. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.